0: This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode...
1: I think if you are an individual contributor and you don't believe in the work that you're doing is equitable, or you don't believe that the organization itself is equitable, whatever the case may be, find a new job. Because you don't have the power to make the changes, and you are going to create so much harm for yourself by trying to go against the grain.
0: A conversation... With Timothy Bard Levin's, and uh, welcome. We are now into our third episode. And with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce you all to Timothy Bard-Levins. I have his bio here and it's beautiful. Timothy bard is chaotic good in its purest form. He is a gay black man from the Carolinas, the youngest son of a single mother and everything institutional trauma and oppression says you cannot be or become. He is a product design leader, a cultural strategist, diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, a co-founder, a writer, and an international speaker and facilitator on topics of design and tech culture, equity, white supremacy, and systems of oppression. Timothy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you for having me. And uh, we want to start with the the land acknowledgement. OCAD University acknowledges the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron wendat Timothy and I are presently on the ancestral and traditional lands of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples, Kickapoo, Humanos, Tawakoni, and Wichita, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which we stand and create. We've gone back a, a while, I've known you for some period of time here, I want to talk about your career and how you came up and you know, what motivates you in the design space, and we can, we can take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. How did you start? What was your motivation for becoming a a designer? How did you break into design? Yeah, I think it started with
1: undergrad. So I was um, actually an English major and I wanted to become the editor-in-chief of Jet Magazine, which is like the blackest magazine that I knew of. And so At that point, my minor was in philosophy. And so basically, I was like, I should take some design classes. So I ended up taking a couple of design classes, changed my minor from philosophy to design. And then I was also at the same time working in the Austin Student Activities and Leadership, or what you would call a student union these days. And basically, there are these two amazing people who were my supervisors, two black women, Ms. D and Ms. Diane. And they're like, basically, you should just do this. Like... You should just go in for it. And at that time, I had created what we call Tissue Talk, which was basically this weekly periodical of events happening across campus. And then we would have student workers go and put them in all the bathrooms, i.e. what I called it. I named it Tissue Talk. Funny thing about life, I graduated almost 10 years ago. And they're still doing tissue talk. So I feel like that's my claim to undergrad fame. But yeah, that's what switched me into graphic design as a major. And then from there, it's kind of history in the sense that it was kind of tough at first because I wasn't like an artist by trade or anything. I didn't draw all my life or anything like that. And most of these people had been in their major for at least two years before me. So I had to feel like I, I played catch up a bit. But then after I graduated, I went off to... I actually first job was like at a trophy manufacturing company. I got fired from that. I actually quit design for about three years and went into retail. I became a store manager in a couple of stores. And then there's really an, another woman at uh, this time, a Latinx woman or Latino woman. She came into my store. And she was at the time, um, I think she still is the internal, um, like vice president of internal communications at Bank of Misswell. So I was living in Charlotte in North Carolina. And she basically was like, your life doesn't start until your 30s, like your 20s are a time where you're just trying to figure things out and you feel like you're not moving fast enough and all these things. And so basically she just gave me the encouragement to to keep trying. And she actually even let me come to Bank of America and tour it and meet a bunch of people in- internally as well. It's so like pushed me back to want to get back into design i made a goal to to find a, a job i started off as a contract worker in a things manufacturing company and they're only marketing designer and then yeah i was in marketing until i think 2015 2016 and then i learned about user experience and i learned about what that means and all the pieces of it with research and all this in service design at the time i was working at capital 1 They had just acquired Adaptive Path, which was like, I guess, if idea was the big one, like Adaptive Path was the idea of UX in a sense. Um, It's from my understanding. I went to their intensive in D.C. It was a week long thing. And I left there like, oh, this is everything I've thought about. Just a totally different language. And so I just went down that path and I ran for it. And so I went to a startup where it was like run by this guy who was actually contested on The Bachelorette. And it was a terrible company, but I joined as the as Senior Director of Creative and UX, which was such a BS title because it was me and one other person. <laughs> but that I was there for four months and then Microsoft called and I was like, y'all don't want to hire me. This is not going to happen. And then I found a manager who was actually crazy enough to say, yeah, we want to offer you a role. And that's what moved me into to Seattle for... You know, a f- almost five years stint going from Microsoft to Zillow to um, Meta. And yeah, it's been an interesting ride.
0: So maybe it was the senior that did it. Maybe if you had just been director, Microsoft Sorry. wouldn't come calling. But now you yeah, that level that matters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was that
1: thing. because It's so funny because they went from senior director to designer, too. And I was like, oh, OK, that's cool.
0: So getting into the, the the business, how did that evolution kind of strike you in terms of the kind of work that you were doing, like the the environment that you were in? What did that progression feel like from you got a graphic design de- degree to this sort of moment of UX is the thing that you want to do to settling in as a practitioner?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Like it, it's a lot of it has been a series of like. Partially luck or blessing, depending on what you believe. Part of it has been like me just being willing to take a, a like risk and big leaps of faith. Like I was in, when I was in Charlotte, I actually had gotten a job at Ernst & Young and I was supposed to move to D.C. as a graphic designer for Ernst Young, which is for most people who don't know, is like a big accounting firm is one of like the big three or something like that. And it was a week before I was supposed to get in the car and drive up there. When something just told me, I was just, I'm tired of surviving. I want to thrive. Financially, um, especially, it was like a big thing for me. And it was actually for a senior designer role. I think that when I was sitting there, I was like, you know what, moving to DC, making this kind of money, like I'm going to get a really small apartment. I'm not going to really enjoy it. And so, and at the time, Capital One had just called and I was like, you know, what? I think this is the right thing. And I was like, I basically told Ernest Young, sorry, I can't accept the role that y'all just you know, gave me relocation, all this stuff for to go and take. And I sat and I waited for six weeks for One to call me back. And then I had to fly out to Dallas to interview. And there was no guarantee I'd get the job. And then once I got the job, then I had to figure out, okay, how do I even afford to get to Dallas? I have no money because I sat for weeks without a job. And so I had to go back and ask them, like, hey, can you give me My bonus. So there's things like that that I had to do. Even me leaving Charlotte was interesting because as like my first real design job, true design job, like one, only reason I I converted from a contractor to a full time employee so quickly was because I needed to get a car, but they wouldn't let me buy it if if I was a contractor. And so I talked to my manager and they basically hired me that same day and then just backdated the hire letter so that I could get a, a car. But then it turned out being to be one of the most like oppressive places I'd ever worked. Like I was the only black person in the corporate side. Everyone else worked in the warehouse. And so I had no one who really looked like me. And then also like my manager was this white woman who I'd never en- engaged with people with passive aggression in that way. My mother is a very direct person. I'm a very direct person. So like, how do you counter passive aggression with directness within you always the aggressor and I had to deal with that. And it was like, there's all this other stuff. And I just, it was so terrible. Like it got to the point where the final days where I just didn't know if that was the day I was going to get fired. Like every day I just went to work thinking today is the day I'm going to be fired. And it was a really, it was a really tough space to be in, especially as someone who wanted to continue to get better in design, who had like really lofty goals to be a creative director and to build all these things. And at that time I was just trying to figure out a new way to to create an email template for this new machine that they created or whatever the case may be. But I think that it was good. I think it was a series of the right decisions. Like me not going to Ernst & Young, I think was a really important decision. And even learning about UX, but also being willing to say, okay, now I've learned about it. I'm going to trust myself enough to just throw some stuff together on my report. Like I literally... When I got back from the intensive and I was working at Capital One, I was an email designer basically there as well, but I was supporting copyright and things like that. And basically what I did was I created a bunch of wireframes and stuff. I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm just going to create the journey of what this email campaign would be and then map that out. Or I did this like landing page thing. So I'm just going to articulate what are the different parts of the landing page. It's very rudimentary stuff. I should not have gotten a job. Anywhere. I lucked out that the startup had no idea who like what design should look like or they they didn't have a high bar, quite honestly. And I think that I'm really good at telling stories. And so I was able to get my way into that. And then I had to learn sketch on the spot. Up until this point, all I've been using is illustrator. All I've been using is like Photoshop. Like I haven't been using anything else. since so I had to learn on the spot and rush and go. I had to like figure out how to create journeys for this new checkout flow and a bunch of other stuff. And so I was like learning as I went along and that four months was super intense. But it gave me at least one portfolio piece in addition to some of the stuff I worked on at Capital One to help me interview at Microsoft. And I looked out that the person who I interviewed with, quite honestly, I think that they had a very flashy view of design, but also how Microsoft did design was a bit more like they saw me as a pure UXer, not so much a visual designer, which helped me out a ton. But I was also I was solid at visual design as well. But I think that's what helped me was I was a strong storyteller, which they really emphasized strong storytelling on that team. And I had a pretty good rationale around product um, implementation and product design. But that kind of what helped me slide in the door a little bit. So I think throughout my whole career, if it wasn't for the storytelling piece, if it wasn't for having that gift of being able to connect a bunch of stuff together and get people to believe what I'm saying, then I don't think I would have made it as far as I have. It's always been a thing that has helped me out a ton.
0: Yeah. And the the narrative capability is just... Being able to explain your own designs, I think, is so difficult. And the portfolio emphasis, I, I think, just compared to the experiences I've had with interviewing, where you just don't see the completion of the, of the vision, that seems to be the part that that really stands out. So, how was your experience as an employee? Because you're building all of these skills, right? You're developing things, you're learning things on the fly. You're also standing out because you're showing new ways of doing things in the startup and then over at Microsoft. Like, how does that affect your work experience? Do you feel yeah. in, like in these places, like everybody's all the same? How do you feel that you, as a black man, in design the spaces, how do you feel that you're performing equitably? How do you feel like you have equity in, in that system in the places that that you've worked?
1: Yeah, honestly, I don't think I've really I don't think it was ever fully equitable. And it's it's so funny because I've actually i actually I got a therapist a few like a couple of months ago and we've been working through this because um, I'm in this transition point in my life. And one of the big things that I realized is that it was well two things. One was that I'd spent so much time putting so much energy into work and into sort of proving my value and proving like I'm good enough both to myself and to others. I think that's the thing about especially being uh, black or brown in these spaces is that especially as heavily white and even like really heavily, um, especially in tech, heavily white and of Asian descent folks, you don't look like one of those two demographics largely, then it's like this proving of belongingness that you have to do. And so I've done that for almost the past decade, but definitely over the past five or six years. And in doing so, work became a major part of my identity. And an assault to me institutionally from work was also an assault to my identity. Even to this point today, I'm realizing some of the trauma that I've experienced institutionally and some of the institutional betrayals that I've experienced and realizing that a lot of the reason why they hurt even more was because I'd wrapped so much of my personal identity into work and my own personal value into work. And so the results of that is also is that I've spent the majority of my career hustling like constantly hustling. I was talking to uh, Steve Johnson, who's the head of design for Netflix. He told me you're at a level now where you, you don't need to hustle anymore. You need to be strategic. And it's actually been a transition that I'm trying really hard to do because I'm so used to, I go into a company, I'm usually under leveled I have to prove that I'm I'm valuable and worth being at the company in general. And then I have to prove my value and my ability to operate at the next level or at the level I should be. And I do that constantly over and over again, every company. And I wrote in my first article of Navigating Whiteness that I've never joined a company at the level I, sh- I feel like I should have been. I've always been under level. And that's still true to this day. And it's actually funny because when I wrote that, especially working at Meta, they're like, can you change the sentence? Because it makes it seem like the same thing happened to you here. And I was like, no, because it did i'm under level and even with me being promoted i'm still under level and so one of the big things that i've been trying to work through in my life too is how do i stop hustling how do i disconnect this exercise i was doing with my therapist just this morning we were talking about words that define me and she was like do you know what words define you that are outside of your work and i was like i'm not really sure so she pulled up this document and shared her screen she's like here's a bunch of adjectives." Pick out the ones that you feel like are related to you or you feel represent you. I started with things like approachable and communicative and leader. And I was like, wait, and I had to pause myself and say, wait, I'm defaulting to looking at how I want people to look at me from a professional perspective. And so I had to go back and start over and pick four different words that I felt would represent me a bit more. And so the ones I picked out were happiness, generosity, empathetic, and balance. And for me, I don't really know what happiness looks like. Happiness for me was always the thing I did at work, as opposed to what do I do when I'm off work? Because when I'm off work, I just sit on the couch and I just like... I'm just like non-existent. I think there's like this thought process that some people have of a belief that you're the only real thing and everyone else is like robots. And so when you don't see them, they just like power down until you see them again.
0: It's like the Truman and Show. You're the center of the universe and everybody's an actor. That's like you. Yeah. And
1: how I operate is I was the person like who powered down. So you'd see me and I'd be all in. I'd be at this conference and I'll speak at this thing and I'd be at like at work and so on and so forth. But then I get home and I just power down and I'm just like, In my own little bubble. No one sees me until I power back up again. And I think that's something that I had that I've been having to work through is, okay, how do I create that balance in my life? And how do I create happiness that's not attached to work and these other things? Because I spent so much time proving worth, proving value, proving that I should be in the space, like all this proving, and it basically became a deep part of my identity that I now have to like dismantle and transition out of and become like, figure out who am I, who is Timothy now? If Let's say I get the title that I want. I get all these other things. Okay, great. But then who am I beyond that? And that's something I've had to work through. It's
0: fascinating because that touches on the kinds of discussions that people are having about the idea of belonging at work, right? The extent to which, your work is your life and not just work-life balance. Like I get off at five, but I still carry this stuff with me. But to feel like when I'm at work, that I'm doing things that are ethically aligned with with what I want to be doing Mm -hmm. that I don't, have microaggressions toward me in, in, in the office that I have okay. spaces that are mine, that are safe. And I want to get into your current job at Meta and preface it by saying, when we talked about this before you started and uh, my reaction okay. to, to that was give or take, what? This is the, the, this is where you wanted to, to apply your trade. But as you become a manager and thinking about the role and the work that you're doing as leading a team of people and making sure that they feel that they have a sense of equity and that they have a sense of community and that you're demonstrating your value at a different level. Mm -hmm. How does that change for you? Like how does that change your perspective toward work, toward managing people, et cetera?
1: Yeah. I think any manager will say the hardest thing to do is balance your own personal growth with that of your team or your own personal happiness with that of your team. There's always this thing of if you're a good leader, then you really want to make sure your team is taken care of. And I tell anyone who's on my team, I believe that it is my ethical responsibility to ensure that they can have a job anywhere else. If they left next week, They would have everything on every tool necessary to get a job at any other company and be able to be successful in doing so. And so I feel as there's a lot of responsibility that we have that I have, especially like even with hiring, like last year between myself and one other person, we worked on this initiative and alone, like us alone, just two people, like two design managers plus one recruiter, our once talent sourcer, actually, we, I single-handedly tripled the number of Black women product design managers at Meta. Like when I joined the company, there were zero. Then Joy Roberts, who I worked with at, at Zillow, she was the one. Now there's, I think, eight. And mind you, like that's still not a lot, but that's way more than what it was two years ago. For me, a lot of the work that has been on the more, how do I build more equitable systems side or how to like think about My team is really, how am I actually being an example? One of the things I did was I actually ended up switching teams. But one of the things I did on my previous team was I hired and built an all-Black leadership team. Like Black managers, majority were Black women. One of the most senior people on my team that was in I.C. she's one step from being a director, also a Black woman. And not only that, but she's a Black queer woman who is younger than me. And she is one step from director. And when I say younger than me, she's like 10 years younger than me. I think she's just hitting maybe 25 or 26, something like that, which is crazy. But the thing is that I saw her talent and I like saw like, I actually, I intentionally reached out to her. I intentionally spent time understanding her and her work before we even hired her to make sure she was going to be successful. I even sent her profile to all of our recruiting team that we worked with and say, hey, if you were to look at this person's LinkedIn profile, what would you bring them in a level them as? And hands down, all of them said two to three levels lower than her actual level. And she has not only met expectations, but exceeded expectations at her level. For me, that's been a really important thing to say, okay, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to show you better I can tell you. And then not only am I going to show you better I can tell you, but I'm going to make sure that every single person on this team feels as though they have what they need professionally, personally, whatever the case may be. I think that while that's great, the downside of it is that also means that many times I'm sacrificing myself for my team, right? Like I'm being the umbrella for them, which means, okay, who's the umbrella for me? And I think that is always one of the challenges is when you have to sometimes make the choice between you and your team. It seems like it's an easy choice, but it's really not. And I've had to work through the guilt of making the decision for myself as opposed to my team and being like, look, I'm here for y'all. I'm still gonna support you, but I gotta do what's good for me. And so those are some of the things that, that I've had to work through that are just like, Hiring challenges, making sure people get effect like a- adequately promoted and leveled, making sure that even before you joined the company, are you at the level you, re- you deserve to be? And like even getting challenged by other leaders and being, Hey, you're advocating too much for this person. Or if I'm saying like, Hey, I think you're underloving this person. Here's my story. And then the feedback is when you tell people that it shuts down the conversation, it makes them not want to argue. I was like, that's fine. They shouldn't. It's still the reality. And so those are some of the things that that I have to work through just on the people side of things. And that doesn't include the normal, hey, because this person is a woman, how are they being treated by their uh, male counterparts? And are they actually supported and so on and so forth? And how do I make sure that I'm a champion for a whole bunch of different types of people and also be seen as, impartial and fair, but also like, I don't know, it's like this balance of have your teams back, but don't advocate too much because that can be seen as a negative thing. And it's like a weird dance that you have to play.
0: And this is why the, the conversation is, okay, so we're increasing the diversity of the organization, but they're all only at the lower levels, right? Mm-hmm. You have these new hires that are that they're coming in that are diversifying the organization, but being a people manager you have an umbrella effect of the people that are below you but then you have to do this kind of grassroots effort to create a coalition not just an employee network but one-to-one relationships with people just to make sure that that you've raised the volume enough about the people that need to advance from there
1: absolutely and a big thing is for me is even sending people for success on faster trajectories and promotions where i need to i've had to make sure i do that at least for my team again I can show better than I can tell. But the other piece, and to that point, and this is actually why I started focusing on specifically Black women, but Black women leaders, was because I realized that it's, it's about network, right? And if you are coming in as a leader, like especially a people manager, and you are of a historically underinvested group, nine times out of 10, you have a network of other people that look like you that you can bring in. And so if you have the power to hire or influence in any way, then most likely that's going to drive more people who like you coming into the organization. I really realized, especially when it comes to a lot of these efforts is like, it has to be a tops down kind of thing. And or actually, no, it has to be a sandwich. It should be bottoms up and tops down. But I think that you have to get a bunch of the middle managers who are like black women or black gay or whatever the case may be, because that's where you get that, that, closer connection to building up the teams. I think where it can fall apart, though, is one is really tough to get people of color executives. We're just not promoted quickly enough as our counterparts. But also, I think that the other part is just we also run into some of those folks who are of historically underinvested or marginalized backgrounds who feel as though they can't or shouldn't do the work or don't want to do the work when it comes to diversity or whatever the case may be, because like I just... I don't want to do that. I I don't want to be known as the Black manager. I just want to be known as a manager. And I think the downside of that lack of intentionality is one, we always have to pay the taxes leaders if we do the work. But if we don't want to, that also means that the impact of that is we end up upholding the status quo. like We end up upholding white supremacy or whatever the case may be because of it. So it's kind of like this it can sometimes be a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario.
0: Yeah. On the one hand, the, the bring your whole self to work, but then there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that, too. So that's actually a good place to to pause here so we can start getting into what an equitable environment looks like and then start talking about kind of UX, not just from the career perspective, but from from the the inclusivity of user experience across racial divides, for example, across like the all forms of human differences we say in inclusive design. So we are going to take a break. Uh, We'll be right back with Timothy Bard-Levins. InX is a major research project by me, Matt May, as part of the Master of Design degree program at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Episodes and transcripts of this podcast can be found at inX.show. That's I-N-E-X.show. Follow InX on Twitter at... I-N-E-X podcast. All right, we're back with Timothy Bard-Levins. And the, the first segment of this, I think, was there was a lot of career stuff. And I want to connect this back to inclusive design because one of the, the, the key principles in, in inclusive design is about there being equitable interactions and having people in the room that we're making decisions collectively. And when you don't have an organization that's diverse, and more importantly, the diversity doesn't get to express itself, right? The the actual division between like diversity and inclusion used to be they at first they were just juking the stats, right? Trying to increase basically women and ethnic diversity in the workplace but not really giving them any power in changing the, the system as it was. Equity comes in here as not only do we have a, a workforce that sort of reflects the, the, the population of where we're at, but that there's an equal amount of power being shared among all of the, the, the people in the system or participating in the system, whether they be customers or people that are in user groups or what have you. So talk to me about the, the the role of equity from kind of an advocate's perspective on that.
1: Yeah, so there, I guess there's so many ways to look at it. I guess let's start off by
0: defining our terms here. Like how would you define equity yeah. in this context?
1: I think equity equity in this space of let's say organizations so how i think about it is to look at a few ways but like let's say you look at the entire employee journey right you have sourcing recruiting hiring onboarding and then is development and, and performance things like that all the way around to offboarding and leaving the company and mixed in there is of course conversations around pay around growth trajectory all those things and i think that when you think equity i think it's not just fairness. Cause I think a lot of people, they say, Hey, we just want to make sure things are as fair as possible. But I think fairness in my mind lends itself to equality is like, Hey, we both have the access to the same resources, but in having access to those same resources, one part, one set of people are going to have a better experience than the other most likely. Ultimately, equity within the space of, let's say, an employee's experiences, not only do they feel like they are getting paid equivalent to their counterparts, but also they have access to sponsorship and clearly articulated intentional sponsorship. Because I think intentionality is a super key here is like, is it set up in a way that is specifically made for this person or set of people? Or is it serendipitous and just so happen they have access to it? But there's also things of like... When you're on the team, what is your experience like? Are you actually heard when you say, here, this is a problem. I'm having a problem. Do people actually take action? Do they actually look into it? Or are you saying, Hey, it'll be okay. Just give it time or whatever the case may be. And they're gaslit. And so I think there's an experiential piece of it, of course. But then I think there's also the actual tangible things like pay, like equal voice at the table, quote unquote, and equal voice when it comes to deference. Will people actually listen, but also not only listen, but actually take action? And in taking action, will they come back and give you credit for the things that work really well so that you have that promotability trajectory, etc.? It's a very long-winded uh, definition, but is this so all-encompassing. It's hard to define it in one specific way or another. Like It's more than belonging. You can belong in a place and still be underpaid and underleveled. And you wouldn't know unless someone tells you. So it just kind of yeah, it depends.
0: I think a, a part of it is a lot of the discussion that, that happens around this is a, about just uh, the working environment, the, the money situation. But to go back to, to your own story er, earlier on about things like paying for relo or, or even allowing work from home, that the... The working environment itself is something that has barriers to it. Coming and hiring somebody new into San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive places in the world, has implications. Not only if you have to move away from your family, if you have supports that you use at home that you're not going to have somewhere else. That's a part of it, too. Sometimes just the structures of an organization dictate who is going to work on it. Yeah.
1: So I think about this a few different ways. I was working with this person who they worked in the Bay for years because that was where work was. And so they'd been at the company for some time, but they worked with in the Bay and then they realized it's a Black man. And he realized, I want to be around more of my people. I want to get married one day. I want to have kids. And I want to be in a place where I have access to that population of people, because the Bay doesn't have a lot of Black people in general. And he made a decision to move from the Bay to Atlanta, but in doing so, he was forced to transition from being a manager to being an IC. And he was basically held back from a levels perspective. Like he didn't get the same kind of growth and development over. The, the subsequent three, four, five years as his peers, who are directors and even some VPs, because he wasn't in the center of power, really, he wasn't in the bay, and it wasn't until pre-post COVID where they actually had to correct his pay to make it more equitable based on new policy where he was able to then transition back into being a manager to get promoted up relatively quickly to a level that he believed he deserved to be. But if it hadn't been for COVID, he probably would not have the same opportunity. When you have these companies that are based in a specific area, but then they say, hey, we want to increase diversity. But then in doing so, you're ripping people out of areas of comfort and you're wooing them with all this money. But then you realize that the money is actually um, maybe it doesn't go that far because you're in the bay. It doesn't go that far because you realize, oh, like I'm making a hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, but my rent is five hundred, and so I only have enough to maybe buy groceries after that, or I can never buy a house because I don't have enough money, or whatever the case may be. It's really interesting to see how companies have become more equitable from the perspective of especially location thanks to COVID. And while also understanding that what they perceived as equitable was the, I'm going to pay for you to like come to this or travel across the country or whatever to get set up and work in this place. And in my mind, like something that was always weird to me was, especially when it comes to teleworking is you would have people, let's say who, let's say there's an office in Menlo Park But there's also offices in New York and Seattle and other places. And so for whatever reason, a person could have a team that's across the entire country, but still be based in one location. But for some reason, that was very different than you working from your home office and having a team spread across the country. And for some whatever reason, people never really seem to understand that those are the exact same situations. Only thing that was different was whether you go into an office or not. But it's, it's interesting how a lot of folks sort of Their mindsets shifted so quickly, but they were also very stuck in this very one-dimensional way of work. I think what I appreciate with these changes are things like being able to work from where you want. So me, I moved to Dallas and now I work fully remote. And for me, that's great because my money goes much further here. I can get a nice size house. I know I can build a family. I know I can pay for things and not be worried about, well, is it going to take a vacation or saving money to buy a house or paying rent? Like, I don't have to make those choices as much. Um, yeah, actually, so, so this is
0: funny. I did the same thing. I moved to Texas after having been working at the same company for a few years from Seattle. And mm-hmm. the, just the, the, oh, wow, this is very different. <laughs> the the mm-hmm. you know, what, what my lifestyle was like in this place that was cheaper changed dramatically. And yeah, that spot on, that feeling of, why can't I have this level of compensation for the place that I want to live? Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I think even now though, I still struggle with companies who do this whole, hey, we're gonna shift your pay based on where you live in the country to make it more market appropriate. And it's like Yes. I, I hate that because ultimately what you're telling me is that I can do the exact same work as another person, but because I don't live in the same area all of a sudden I'm less valuable. It, it doesn't really make sense to me. And I, I, it doesn't matter how you slice it, it just doesn't make sense. Because let's be honest, I, I feel as though on some level, even people who work in the Bay, in Seattle, in New York, places that are higher cost of living, they still don't really make enough to really thrive. That being said, I, I do think that's one thing that is still left to be desired. If knowing me moving from San Francisco to North Carolina is going to change my pay by 20%. Do I really want to do that? Do I want to take that much of a hit? I think that's something that some people are struggling with is I don't want to take that financial hit. I want to be able to take my same paycheck and go in somewhere else. When I bought my house, one of the conditions they had for me closing the home was showing that me moving from Seattle to Dallas, it wouldn't patently change my pay in a way that would um, make owning my home more difficult. And so... It still is some issues from an equity perspective that I think are tough and that need to be worked through. But I think at least people being able to work from where they want is a good start.
0: Yeah. There are lots more pieces to th- yeah. that we can discuss about the, the working environment and the cohesion, how people mm-hmm. end up working together. But what really struck a lot of people in the disability community about this was that, these discussions were a non-starter before COVID. Anything that required anything out of the ordinary for you, even if it was something that was legally obligated for an employer to provide, was something that was just technically far too complex. If somebody needed to to be working from, from home regularly, it was like, oh, we'll find some other accommodation so that you can come in and work in the office for this. And then suddenly everybody's, oh, yeah. You can work from home. Your kids can go to school from home. And, and then now we're actually seeing these things start to be peeled away in the return to office discussion mm-hmm. as well. And so if you had this opportunity to provide a, a working environment that people were satisfied with, then what gives you reason other than economy mm-hmm. to take it all away?
1: I think even with that, like one of the things that, that struck me as so interesting was when there was this transition to work from wherever you want these leaders who maybe just a year or more ago were so adamant against it all of a sudden they're like these big proponents it's almost like the work-life balance thing oh yeah you can work wherever you want like i'm gonna go and i bought a house i'm living in hawaii like a fad or a fashionable thing to do to to work remotely and to pick some random place like oh i'm gonna go to utah and work from there from now on or whatever and it boggles my mind because y'all were so adamant against this or oh man i miss people so much i miss people so much and i'm like You miss people so much, but Met at least, you always had the ability to fly to different office locations. That's never been taken away. So what exactly is the excuse now with the return to work really is the excuse boiled down to, hey, we have these leases and these buildings and we have to justify keeping them for some reason. Because that's what it feels like to me.
0: That's the only thing that's come to mind for for me about this, that it was, there was a certain amount of of face-to-face interaction and a certain amount of surveillance that people were going to do their job because you look in the business magazines and you see all these articles Uh about everybody's doing a side hustle while they're in the office. It just scares people into thinking that they're being cheated out of of labor. And that the only way to avoid that is through manual oversight, which has a, a lot of implications as well it's still a a thing that that sticks in my cross i want to change gears and talk about Mm -hmm. the discussion of equity at a product level we were we're talking about my model for for how this works which is when we talk about all forms of human difference which we do in inclusive design all the time that when we talk about disability inclusion we're talking about we're talking about accessibility, like software oh. accessibility, and that when we talk about any other form, race, gender, LGBTQ, language, literacy, culture, all of that is not considered to be a software issue. It's considered to be more an HR hiring, promotion kind of, kind of issue, but that leaves two huge gaps. Right there's the disability employment that remains a, a major problem, and there's also this sense of inclusion at a product level. One of the reasons that this is so important, the career path and making sure that everybody is spread out within the organization that is at all levels of the organization is that it affects what you create in the end, that the decision making is filtered through all of these lived experiences. And can you talk about that? And can you think of issues that you run into or that you can see that a white designer that's only ever lived in San Francisco doesn't see in the way that they are developing UX, portraying users in in imagery, what have you?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah one thing that we've been pushing on for a while that was like this stronger transition and focus on um, product development through the lens of social identities, right? When I was in communities, we were looking at how to just help people join. But then when you start thinking through what does safety look like and how do you think about safety from the lens of communities on Facebook, but also through the lens of, let's say, the most marginalized, let's say a black trans woman. Hell, you can layer on a black trans disabled woman and you have the most marginalized of the marginalized. And so... You say, okay, what does that experience look like? And you start to think through, there's examples where, you know, a couple of years ago when we had the killing of Breonna Taylor and everyone else, that like all those folks that were murdered and so on and so forth. And we had the whole social uprising and things. And what we found, we actually did the research. This happened to me as well. Like I actually had personal experience, but also we did, we saw it come up in research where we saw these like black folks who were in these plant lover groups. And in that plant lover group, they're like, we don't want to talk about social issues. That's not what we're here for. We're here to only talk about plants. And some yeah. people are like, we're still humans. And there were a group of people who have built some level of a relationship. Shouldn't we have these conversations about what's happening in the world? You have this big dichotomy where people, like even myself, like I felt unsafe all of a sudden. I'm like, wait. So, we can talk about one thing, but when we talk about social issues that are deeply affecting us, then all of a sudden, this group is in a safe space and isn't right for us. And this is something that especially Black folks do, but I think most people do who are of a, of a marginalized identity is like, they bifurcate what part of themselves shows up in what spaces. And to have to do that through digital experiences makes it even harder because the assumption is that through a digital experience, you actually can be more of yourself because it takes away some of that judgmental barrier as in human interaction. And so like it becomes really tough. I think another good example is we were looking at some potential product experiences and these folks, they were getting really excited about doing focus on humor in in the space of communities and in groups. And there was a suggestion around like, hey, what if we gave people the ability to create memes through the composer on Facebook? And I was like, nope, not going to do it. Not at all. Nope. And people are like, no, this is so great. I was like, I can see the New York Times article now that says that Facebook has allowed someone to create some misogynistic, xenophobic, racist, sexist, whatever posts, and it's being shared across the whole world. I can see that headline right now. No, we do not have the mechanisms in place to be able to effectively read what is on an image and assess whether or not it's harmful or not. We, we can't do yeah.
0: this. This is a no. An attractive nuisance. So Microsoft ha- had that AI that they put out on the the internet, and it was trained to be racist through a chat interface. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the Snapchat filters. All of these things that, that you see pop up, and you're like, was there one person of color in the room that, where the decision was made to, to right. do that? Did you think fully about the consequences of this? And I think Facebook... Yeah. The the app as opposed to meta of the company like Facebook has this as probably one of the biggest uh, issues just because it's a blank slate there is content moderation all, all over the place but then the discussion of what's in and what's out tends to be the important part the user generated content yeah. is ninety nine point nine percent of what Facebook is and then you have these sort of you know debates and discussions of. of who's allowed to say certain things in what spaces. And Mm -hmm. that to me is why there needs to be more voices that speak up in that, like in, in those rooms so that there are more of those nopes like instantly. Let me give you the list of why this is a bad idea.
1: Yeah. Well, see, and I think even that though is, and this is where, like I said, This damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario comes in for folks underrepresented communities. People always ask this question, was there at least one person of color in the room or so on and so forth? And it's one, does there have to be? Do I always have to be in the room for you not to do something stupid? Um, Or if I'm in the room, do I always have to be the one to speak up? Then what happens is if I'm always the one to speak up and push against it, then I become the contrarian which means I'm now the troublemaker, which means is now affecting my growth trajectory and my promotion ability and like my likability, yeah. which
0: the right? kind of right. argument, Oh, you didn't fit right. with, with the culture. And yeah. And this gets to another issue of this. So if I'm talking about something cognitive, something that, that relates to my ADHD or neurodiversity, mm-hmm. there are things that, that I bring to it that is, this is actually for me. I'm, I'm self advocating and there are lots of different people that are, are representing you know, one or more marginalized communities in this space. Ultimately, there needs to be some cross-pollination that people mm-hmm. need to start to understand more deeply that, that this is happening because for all of the other privileges that I express, I get to be in a lot of rooms and surprise people with the fact that I'm not going to go along with whatever racist anti-trans you know, kind of decision that's right. that, that's being made. How do you you foster an environment where people stop only listening if there's one person in in the room doing this, but instead start sticking up for one another?
1: Yeah, honestly, and this is something something I wrote about in part two of Navigating Whiteness, which was really around addressing sensibilities and your own sensibilities. And it's a thing that there's no way to create a system around it. It's there's no way to create a framework for it. There is no checklist for it. It Illegit takes people being intentional, introspective, and doing the work. And I think that's what makes it so hard is because you are asking people to have a level of humility to say, it's not about me. It's about this other person, this other thing, this other group, or let me go and learn and understand and do my best to do that. And again, have the enough humility to make myself uncomfortable to be able to learn. And then in learning, be able to take that and move forward with it. And I think that's the thing we struggle with the most. A good example at the most basic level is masks, right? Some people are like, I don't want to wear a mask. It's against my freedom. I don't care. And other folks are like, no, you need to wear a mask because it's not just for you, but it's for everyone around you. It's for your family, so on and so forth. But the vast majority of us are very... Whether you know it or not, we're all selfish. And so unless you've grown up in a society that is innately community oriented. Honestly, if you look at like places in the Middle East or Africa or uh, Latin America, like these quite honestly non-white countries, there's more of a community orient. And so it's less about I and more about we. But us as Americans, we're all about American exceptionalism and about us and our individual liberties and our individual rights. And we forget that there are other humans around that we have to think about and care about. It's the dilemma of innovation. To be innovative, you have to do a thing in the corner by yourself and don't let anyone see it and then rush it to market as quickly as possible. But in actuality, what you're doing is completely cutting out a whole subset of people who should actually have opinions and thoughts and perspectives on that thing because it then becomes not only effective and successful but also it reduces the harm of it. And I don't think people really understand yet how to get out of their own way. And like, you remember, like, there was a whole wave of empathy in design empathy and everyone, like that was, there was,
0: <laughs> the, 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 we've, we actually already had this, the, this conversation before. I, I bring up empathy in these interviews because I have a, a particular perspective on it, but the word humility has come up just as often. And I think even if you have cognitive empathy, right, not just that you're putting on the the outfit of somebody that, that has been expressing their uh, lived experience to you, like that the, the, the movie's playing for you, right? Like mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier, but that you. From your perspective can genuinely see and understand the perspective that's aside from you. That can be beneficial, but without the humility to to understand how limited your perspective on that is, When you turn empathy into something that gives you pride or gives you status or something that Mm -hmm. makes you different or better than anybody else, then you've completely lost the plot, right? You're now basically just acting out all of these different kinds of of people whose experiences that you've never had.
1: Yeah, and it it also becomes this thing of, I've seen it two ways, but a lot of it really ends up landing on the area of savior. I learned about these people. I'm going to help them because I understand how to help them best. At its worst, it becomes really paternalistic. I think that is the biggest struggle when it comes to this. People ask all the time, Hey, how do we create more equitable products? How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this? And I can't help but always answer the same way, which is you need to do some internal work. Like You need to be introspective. You can literally have all the questions that you would ever ask about racial justice and equity and all these other things to make sure you're doing the right thing from a product perspective. You can answer all of them thoughtfully. You can have a whole 600 page dissertation and still create the most harmful products. And you will look at it and someone will say, Hey, you harmed me or you harmed this whole group of people. And they'll say, I don't understand how we did all this work. Look at all what we did. It can't be possible. And then they'll be in complete denial. And it's because people just don't understand how to do the work. It's not just doing the work internally, but it, I think there is always still that external component of, you do you need to have the right people in the room? Because you should be able to gut check and be like, hey, these are my thoughts. What are your thoughts? Or do you see this differently? And you can have a conversation about that as opposed to sometimes being the token in the room and you having to be the voice of, hey, Black person, do you think this is okay? Is this racist? No, it's not okay. Great, we're gonna do it because you know they, you're forcing one person to, to be the monolith for the entire race. And so you have to have an internal work which is paired with having the right people in the room who have an actual voice that is valued, that has difference, and that will actually move the needle.
0: I think there's this idea of needing to be validated for the for the work that if you are if you're saying that you're an inclusive person and you're very empathetic and you've done this thing and then your sitting there waiting to receive your laurels for being a good person that any criticism of this just takes the mask right off that right. suddenly i had a tweet about this of the the woman screaming at the cat of like <laughs> the like uh, he, the empathetic person does something and says actually that's problematic and then they're like it, it, immediately they're like well i am a good person that just shows the ego that's involved in, in that whole interaction that yeah. it, it's not about the person that you uh, ostensibly were supposed to be helping at all it's about how good that makes you. And that ends up making things worse in a lot of cases than, than if you had ever just left it alone.
1: Yeah, I was talking to my little brother, who's technically my stepbrother. And he was just kind of lamenting on like, he really wants to help his sister because she she wanted to go to law school. But now it seems like she just goes to work and then goes home. And then that's all she ever does. And his mother who has a visual impairment and like trying to help her and he like decided to move back and make sure he can cook for them and th- this and that. And he was like, I just want to make sure they have a better life, they do better. And I told him like, I just want you to realize that while you think you're doing the right thing, but what you're really doing is you're selfish. And what you're doing is that you're saying that this is my view of what I think they should be doing. And because of that, I'm going to push them to do the thing that I think, as opposed to saying, hey, are they happy with where they are now? If yes, then let them be happy. Allow them to live because when you feel bad, you feel anxious, you have this guilt for having some level of success yourself because you're selfish and you want to reflect yourself in your 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 other family members. And so in doing so, if they're not reaching that, then you feel the obligation to help them. The equivalent of, oh, look at these savages. Let me help show them the word of God. It's the same thing. I think that we do it in product design and UX all the time. Like we always do this thing of, oh, there's a predetermined path that we tell people this is the right path. This is the golden path. And that's what you should take. And then You someone comes back and takes a different path, or say, hey, that path is broken, or that path doesn't feel right, and you blame the user, you blame the person, as opposed to understanding that actually maybe you did the wrong thing. And it's sort of like in math class, you used to hate this. Whereas you 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 have an equation, teacher tells you to solve it, you solve it, and you get the exact right answer, but because you didn't use the specific equation that they gave you to solve it, then it's wrong. But is the ultimate goal to get the answer? Or the process to get to the answer, because I'm going to get to it as quickly as I can. And so I think we, we certainly need to look at people who, like humans who use our products, the same way. They will navigate and find things specific in unique ways. So, how do we create as many avenues to get there without overbloating the product and making it overly complex? And I think there is a, a good balance there. Like, I think Adobe is a good example. I use Illustrator all the time. I know there's two ways to get to the, the arrow tool. Either I can hit A or I can go over to the uh, left bar and click on the thing and then I'll select it. But at least there's a couple of ways for me to get there and whichever one makes sense for me, but it doesn't force me down just one specific pathway.
0: Yeah, having multiple different ways to complete some, uh, something and that takes time to, to understand, to absorb, and it doesn't happen all at once. It, it requires listening. If, if it had just been invented... And uh, here, this is what we have to offer you. This that sort of the cathedral model of developing the systems. The the results are you get what you get. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that just the fact that software is easy to evolve compared to construction of buildings or things like that. That Mm -hmm. um, you we we have a lot more of a responsibility to make sure that we're reaching people where they're at. So I want to take one quick break and then I want to come back and talk about hopes and dreams for the future. We'll be right Mm -hmm. back with. Timothy, Bar-Levin. on the next episode of NX. Every year I go and do a little talk on neurodiversity for the first year psych residents at my university. And this is the kind of stuff I talk to them about. It's like, no, you have to like actually talk to people who have lived experience about what we want and don't assume that psychiatric medication is like the end all be all of access because it's it's really not a conversation with amy Hamurai all right we are back with timothy bard levins and um we're going to start talking about speculative futures as we're talking about creating inclusive and equitable environments creating inclusive and equitable products there comes a question of how do we Create those structures where would they need to be created, and I I broke these up a little bit as uh, how do you take an organization that's already operating in a certain way and make the changes that are necessary to to have something where everybody feels that they are participating equally, equitably, and that's kind of the the hard one. I think maybe we should tackle that first because this is probably if people are listening and thinking about their organizations. The question that's probably on most of their minds is, what do I do as an individual contributor? What do I do as a, a lower mid-level manager? Somebody that's not the CEO that can just say, hey, guess what? We're going to change our way of working to this. From that bottom up, grassroots, how do we start to instill a sense of equity in the work that we're doing and the work that we
1: output? Okay. I'm giving you, transparently giving my gut response and it's you don't. And the reason why I say that is I think the problem with DEI is that it is always a grassroots effort, right? Like it's always a small set of people who want to grow it into a bigger thing. And then there might be a program that's created, but then HR takes over it and then it gets bastardized or whatever the case may be. Same narrative all the time. And so you don't. I think if you are an individual contributor and you don't believe in the work that you're doing is equitable, you don't believe that the organization itself is equitable, whatever the case may be, find a new job. Because you don't have the power to make the changes and you are going to create so much harm for yourself by trying to go against the grain. And you might be successful, you might find allies, Or you might just be disillusioned and want to leave anyway. And that's what happened with me the first time I tried to do this work. I think that if you're a middle manager, then you have a bit more power. I would think about what is your power within your circle being your core team that you're supporting, as well as maybe your peers and other allies that may be around your peers, as well as folks who are within your direct leadership chain that you could potentially influence in some meaningful way. I think that where the real change happens isn't in middle management any like at first i thought that was like the layer that was really broken but in actuality i think the layer that's actually broken is in upper management and like the director level cuz vps are too far away they don't really know they can't really see they have aspirational visions but they're not actually tracking progress usually when it comes to these types of things and they like the things that they're graded on are very different and so where it makes the most difference to me is that director level because they do have a closer look at the results. They have a closer look at the work while also being able to see pretty broadly across an organization, as opposed to middle management. They are so deeply focused on the work itself that many times they have to figure out, is this a choice of the work or the people or something else? And so I think that's the thing to assess is like these directors... What are you doing and how are you setting the example and how are you hiring leaders who should be doing the work and how are you advocating using your power? Because directors have a very broad set of powers that aren't that isn't given to everyone. Managers, senior managers, what can you do within your, cer- your sphere of influence and how can you drive that forward, whether it's through your teams or through your peers and their teams? Uh, Cs. How can you, if you would like, if you feel safe, how do you bubble up concerns or feedback? And in doing so, see if you have leaders who are responsible of this. And I saw those things as a preface. But in actuality, again, you go back to the, like the employee lifecycle. This is a multi-pronged effort. And so to build equitable products, that means that you have to not only look at who are you hiring, promoting, or letting go. But also, excuse me, you have to look at that in addition to looking at where does the work actually come from? Who's building the priorities? How are those things being gauged, How are we building metrics? Do the metrics support or do they come against what you're trying to achieve? If they go against it then how do you bring bring in other metrics? So some folks you have like... Some companies you have a quantitative and a qualitative metric. And so how can you have balance between those two things? The right organization has done the work to understand what is the quantitative and qualitative metrics that we want to associate with more equitable products as well as more equitable organizations. We have directors who are hiring leaders who have that right focus and they're leveraging their power to enact real programs across an organization. And then we have middle managers who are continuing to grow their sphere of influence and being able to both bubble down the things that need to go downward, but also bubbling up the information that's coming from their team. And ultimately, that should hopefully influence VPs in the C-suite who are many times aren't telling you what metrics to track, but they're asking you to develop them. And so the directors should be able to bubble up and say, Hey, this is where we believe it's important and what we believe we're actually doing really well and where we believe we have gaps. And they can work with VPs to build out that strategy and to build out the nar- the corporate narrative around that, which then ultimately it becomes external to shareholders, to users, to whomever else. To me, in my mind, that's actually the right way to approach it when it comes to the sort of organizational shifts, it has to be at the director level, which then has the power to drive up and down.
0: Yeah. As you were talking about this, I was thinking about the NFL's Rooney rule, the idea that for hiring a, a head coach that you needed to basically interview one racial minority candidate. And the effect of that has been a lot of, I guess, drive-bys. Like courtesy interviews that have resulted in head coaches times if they were black and they were hired as a head coach in the nfl being short and not having the same kinds of opportunities these little ideas of quick fixes are the things that stick with me there's a culture problem in the the league and finding one kind of band-aid over that problem doesn't make it go away it doesn't get to the heart of the problem it's complicated and it takes time to, to change cultures. It requires a lot of people to put effort in. And as you were talking about what it takes out of you and encouraging people to quit, that's something that I do too, actually. My number one advice to people who are stagnating in their careers is don't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. If you are the only one that is trying to make this work inclusive, to try to, to diversify an organization, to try to make them focus on something other than making more money, then you know there comes a certain point where you just have to realize you're beating your head against the wall, and that there are other places that you are going to be more receptive to that kind of work. What that like resonates most with, and the the people that I talk with are basically Gen Z and the newest generation of people that are coming into the industry because. They they have an ethical point of view, generally, that is really well-evolved. They want to be doing work that aligns with their ethical values. And I don't know if you've seen the same kind of thing, but if you're looking for a culture change, finding it in people who actually have that passion and represent an entire generation of people that are going to be coming into the workplace, that... It's going to be hard to to pick apart uh, the the overall groundswell of that need for the work that you do to have some kind of of ethical alignment.
1: Have you seen that too? Absolutely. Even I'm trying to get better about. I've heard people talk all the time around, "Hey, I love this company. It's so mission driven. It's mission driven. Like I love the mission. It's mission driven." And for a long time, even personally, I'm like, I don't really care about the mission. I just care about, am I going to get paid well? And is it generally just not like killing babies and stuff? Like just generally an okay kind of environment, but I'm seeing more and more. There is this phrase of mission driven and caring about the mission and caring about the impact that I'm seeing. And when I'm talking to especially new grads, it's so interesting because of course, working at Meta, there's a ton of opinions about the company and its impact on society and et cetera. And part of the conversation I have to have with people is usually around, it's usually something is around, Hey, it's, sometimes it's not where we are, but where we can go or where you want us to go or where you believe we should go. And you're like, I don't know, it's this dance that I see a lot of people having to do now of, okay, I want to be a change maker can I join a company and be able to be the change that I see? Or can I, I'm not really sure about the more like the ethics of this or the impact of this on people. How do I like make that decision? Or a lot of folks are like, hey, I don't want to go into big tech because I just don't feel like it does great things for the world. And I want to do work that's that's more impactful and so on and so forth. And then I have to... The biggest challenge that I've been having is really in explaining how to get people to shift their perspective on it. Like for example, there's one person who I was talking to who recently accepted an offer to meta on the stories team. And at first he was like, I'm not sure if I want to join that team because I really care about helping support people who Want to build community and to help people build community and connect with people like them, so on and so forth. And so, one thing I had to explain to him was: if you think about stories, you think about most young adults between the ages of eighteen and twenty-five, give or take, they're using stories because they like they like the quick sort of access to. Like quick snips of sharing their life or store or their journeys, whatever. And most people, especially small businesses are leveraging stories as a way to get their work out or get their um, products out in the world. And so by you actually supporting that team, there's actually a, a trickle effect or like a connection to actual people in the real world who are leveraging the product in this specific way to be able to connect with community, to be able to articulate their story, to be able to sell their products and build their business. And so. I think the biggest challenge I've seen is getting people to understand a level deeper, because I do see Gen Z as especially as being really anchored on ethics, morals, and like the impact on the world. But I think that part of the challenge is that sometimes they're looking at it in a very surface level, and it's like, how do we, how do I help you take it a level deeper? Like, how do I be a good custodian of the work and of the, of the opportunity to say there is one level deeper. And if you go one level deeper and you're doing the work and it doesn't feel right, then how do you make a decision on what you want to do next? Because the other part that I try to explain to folks, especially Black folks who tell me, hey, I just don't want to work for another company where I'm the only Black person on the team. And I tell them all the time, sorry, that's just always going to be the case for the most part. That's just going to be what it is. You have to live with it. The thing is, what does it feel like being on that team? Are you actually going to be supported, developed, grown or not? These conversations that these folks want to have they're anchored on and I don't think we talk about power enough when it comes to equity, when it comes to ethics and all these other things. Like it's just a power thing. And so as much as you see this groundswell of Gen Zers, especially who And really I'll say Gen Zers and the younger millennials, I think you see this groundswell of these folks like asking these really hard questions of pre existing structures and organizations and like really wanting them to have impact. But also, they get really frustrated quickly because they don't have the power to enact the change that they believe in. And that's where the next thing is how do you identify leaders who are doing that and say, hey, I want to work for them or model myself around them or whatever. I think that's the thing that's helped me be successful as a hiring manager model what a lot of people want to see. And so they feel more comfortable taking a leap to come to a place like Meta that they feel like isn't for them because they see someone like me working there who's still doing the work. So then. It becomes, okay, we have a groundswell, but they don't have power. So how do we as older millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, all those folks, like how do we in the higher generations or older generations actually start modeling those behaviors that give them sort of that that hope that things can shift and that people do care? Because I don't think we communicate enough about how much we do care. We just do the work in silence. And no one really knows that we're actually doing the work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think it's hard really to, to even open up to talk about that with, with people as they're coming in, because there's a sense of the party line, right? There's things that, that you say to, to your players and not getting into the personal stuff. And that kind of reinforces that barrier. The, the safety to actually extend yourself in that space is one thing, but... Also, if everybody is kind of in their own box, having their own issues, and everyone is uncomfortable expressing them to one another, then the stagnation there can be unbearable.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. It's such an interesting phenomenon and sort of like shift that we're seeing happen in the workforce and how people approach work. And I'm curious to see how it shows up in in the near future, because... I would say in the next decade, not near future, I'd say next decade, because I feel as though a lot of us in the like millennial generation are like really, many of us are like really annoyed with, let's say, especially folks who are in the more baby boomer, boomer generation, even like the older Gen Xers, because we're like, hey, get out of the way. We want to be there now. We are ready to take the reins. And I'm interested to see how when millennials are more solidly in those. Executive and C-suite roles, and you have more Gen Zers who are in those like middle management roles. It's just to see how the industry changes, or if it changes, or if there's some kind of reversion that happens. Of I learned from this leader what to do, so now I'm going to do that thing, and it just becomes like a continuation.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated about this, and I think that as long as we're not sort of ruled by crypto barons by that point, I'm really interested in the evolution. Like, What are the structures that need to stay and what need to go? I want to wrap up by giving you the opportunity to highlight people that you think uh, that our listeners should be looking into, people you think are doing great work, that are doing inclusive, equitable work advocacy research.
1: Yeah, there's so many people out in the world. I would say, of course, I always shout out my best friend, first and foremost, Internet Carol. If people don't know her, then you're living under a rock because... She is literally the best. And then I'll also say there's a really an amazing person named Demarosa Rodriguez, who she's the head of community safety, trust and safety at Meta. But uh, even before that, she built the team at the equity engineering team at Google, like amazing person to just know of. And then there's also, also Vivian Castillo, who's like the best. She she's now leading full-time humanity centered which is an amazing organization and i think it's really great if nothing else like i've learned a ton just about like how to think about organizational trauma organizational betrayal what does that even look like how do you heal from it how do you like all those things are just like really interesting it's just like different like she approaches A lot of these topics, especially when it comes to people's lived experiences within organizations from the place of therapy, because she used to be a therapist. And so she has a very clinical way of looking at it while also mixing in her experience coming from a theology background, while also coming through like her research background and working in these big corporations. And so... Amazing! Like even just go to LinkedIn or to Twitter and just look at some of the video clips from it. Just amazing and really intriguing conversations.
0: We'll we'll put links in to the show notes.
1: Yes, three amazing black women.
0: Thank you so much for participating. I really appreciate all our conversations, but I think this is the first one that's been recorded. So (laughs) thank you, and we have more to come. Yes, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for you. And uh, yeah, we're gonna keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at InX.show. That's I-N-E-X.show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening.